Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation. All the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of Cha Dao. This will be the focus of this podcast, developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine, Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, you're welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together. Welcome to this episode of Life of Tea. Today we will be discussing living tea. This topic is of course familiar to Global Tea Hut readers, although sometimes misunderstood, and it is something so fundamental that lies at the heart of our practice that we should devote some time to understand it better. Welcome back to the podcast to discuss living tea, Wuda. Hi everybody, uh, what an important topic to have a discussion about. Before we talk about uh, the characteristics of living tea, I think it would be good to also explore why we call this living tea as opposed to some other labels like uh, organic tea or sustainably produced tea. So maybe you can shed a little bit of light on that, would I? Yeah, so, you know, organic is a very complicated topic. It's, you know, you have the certification to for the government and all of that, of what that entails, which, you know, is important and it's a way forward, but, you know, it's often not enough. It often... Uh, is maybe too limited and narrow and stringent or too open and free um, of a concept and different governments around the world define it differently. And it's both mostly based on what, you know, what is safe for human consumption. So it's a human centric model and it, and it certainly has issues. Um, overall, we're in huge support of it though, because it's a, it's a stepping stone towards uh, better ways and towards uh, stronger agricultural practices uh, but but it's limited. Um, and so there's all these other concepts as well that kind of extend beyond organic because or organic just means chemical free. And so farmers then could still use fertilizers, but just natural ones made of like tofu or compost. And they could still uh, use uh, insecticides, just natural ones made of uh, chili or essential oils or whatever. And that would technically still be organic in most cases. Um, but what we're talking about is, is natural farming is what is in Chinese called jun cha, which means literally it's translated as like real tea, but, uh, that doesn't really work in English because, you know, real kind of to us means, what do you mean real as opposed to fake tea? Is it like inauthentic tea? Is it not, <laughs> is it some other plant? Or, I mean, you know, we have a lot of that in the West, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the other plants as tea, uh, that's anecdotal though. As tea lovers, we should call all of that tisane, which is, uh, I'm 
probably mispronouncing the French word, but it's a French word that we've taken into English to mean, you know, all the other plants like chamomile and things that we brew in hot water. Mm-hmm. So um, not the camellia genus that, that we're speaking about when we say tea specifically. So herbal infusions. In yeah, herbal words. infusions. So, you know, but real tea isn't, isn't a great, uh, it's just not a great word in English. So, um, you know, I thought for a long time about how to tr- translate this, um, you know, and sometimes I, I'll speak of it in terms of like natural farming as a way to talk about it. But um, eventually I came up with the term living tea, which I think like encapsulates what is meant by junta, uh, by, by real tea and uh, what, what that entails. And it's far beyond just the limitations of organic. In fact, there's six characteristics of living tea, and only one of them has to do with agrochemicals. So literally five-sixths of what makes living tea living tea is goes beyond uh, um, just the concept of organic. And as I said, the concept of organic means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and, it, and it's highly contestable, and it's it's controversial. Even to farmers, you know, here in Taiwan, um, the government's pretty stringent and sometimes doesn't take into account um, some of the needs of the of the actual farmers in different locations in in Taiwan and and um, you know because it's such a small island like you know the, the their neighbors can influence them and you know even if their neighbors spray or runoff or whatever can get in their farm and they they uh, face difficulties and challenges and you know like farmers around the world like all positive work around the world we, we face challenges but we have to stay positive and not get run down and continue to to work. And certainly, though organic has limitations, and though it has problems, and though it has corruption, it's uh, it's it's better than nothing, and it's a way forward. It's kind of like government. <laughs> though the governments of the world have problems, and though uh, certainly they need to be improved, um, you know, it, having governments better than having none, <laughs> and and you know we're 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 making progress and we're trying and you know a lot of these issues are issues of the heart it's that's very important to remember too um that the world doesn't have climactic problems it doesn't have global warming problems it doesn't have pollution problems it has only one problem and that's human beings and uh you know if there were no humans then taipei would be covered in plants and have deer walking down Zhongshan road in a matter of months or years and maybe tigers eventually too, after maybe thousands of years. But uh, you know, it's 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 all really a human problem, and and human problems aren't really solved politically or economically. They're solved in the heart. So ultimately, not only is it a human problem, it's a heart problem. Mm-hmm. And when that heart problem is is uh, solved, uh, we solve the problem. In the meantime, uh, organic is a beautiful stepping stone. But living tea is something uh, certainly above that. And uh, this is one of the maps that you can use to kind of separate the qualities of of tea. So we say like uh, organic, conventional, so-called conventionally grown plantation tea, organic plantation tea, and living tea. (laughs) Though I don't know why organic tea, organic anything, organic, any organic agriculture should bear the burden of being unconventional, considering that's how our ancestors grew all their crops for 10,000 years since the dawn of agriculture, whereas agrochemicals have only been around, you know, half a century or a little more. So, you know, I don't know why that that way is called conventional, uh, but, but it is thus. And so 
uh, you could you can separate tea into these three categories of of conventional farmed organic plantation tea and then uh, living tea. And uh, this is a really useful and powerful map for a chajin to have. So after we talk about the characteristics of of living tea, I think we can then maybe talk about some ways in which you can use this map as a chajin to to change your your path and your approach to tea and how tea interacts with you and, and affects your life mm-hmm. as, as medicine. But, you know, it all starts with that, with the understanding uh, that, you know, you need, you need, in order to heal, you need the right medicine. If you're prescribed the wrong herbs, if you're prescribed the wrong pharmaceuticals, you're not going to get better, of course. In fact, it could cause side effects. And, you know, as far as causing side effects... Of course, tea is, an, is, is a medicine more for calming down and relaxing than it is for any specific physical ailment, though it does improve our physical health as well. But so the analogy maybe is, is a little bit forced, but, but it's still there. You know, in my experience in these 30 years of traveling around, about 90%, there are still 10% of exceptions, which are exceptions that, you know, are there's a lot of different kinds of exceptions. But about 90% of people who have negative symptoms from drinking tea. Uh, you know, I drink tea in the morning, I can't sleep at night, I get headaches, stomach aches, whatever it is. About 90% of those people, uh, those symptoms go away when they start drinking clean, pure, organic tea. That's that's amazing, and that's powerful, and that's uh, it shows that, you know, the same thing. If you're prescribed the wrong pharmaceuticals or herbs, then you're not going to get better, and you might have side effects. Um, and the other 10% is, you know, due to all kinds of factors. But that's that's the majority of, of, of it is the people who switch to clean tea, then um, you know they their symptoms go away. And our uh, little preview for Global Tea Up members, our September extended issue this year is all about pure tea. And we say pure tea because you know each of those levels, like the organic plantation tea, the living tea, and you know there are some things in between too. There's some levels in between or just basic organic plantation tea and living tea. There's, you know, what you could say, ecological gardens, and there's some, like, maybe it's not quite living tea. It compromises on maybe one or two of the six characteristics, but it's still better than organic because organic is only one of the six characteristics, and it maybe has four or five. Mm-hmm. So there's several levels in between, which you can name anything you want. And each of the levels of tea is necessary. We need them all. And uh, each one has its own criteria for what is clean. So organic plantation tea has its own criteria the middle levels have their own criteria, and then living tea is the kind of pen, the the kind of ultimate of the of the of tea. It's what tea should be. So, um, it's it's when you drink pure clean tea, then you know it's it's a big part of the healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, part is our approach in our in our in in the way that we approach tea, and the way that we cultivate ourselves and work with tea. But a, a part also is the is the medicine, and so, um, and as we talk about the six characteristics, we can talk about that topic and the medicine and the power of the healing of the tea. Yes, why don't we jump into um, the six characteristics of living tea then? Yeah, good. So um, you can list the six characteristics in any order you like, but we'll start with uh, seed propagation, which is the first one. Uh, which is really powerful. Tea is a is a sexual plant. Um, in previous issues of of Global Tea Hut, I think April two thousand seventeen, we've gone through the 
scientific life cycle of the tea tree um, and uh, talked about that. But it is a sexual plant, um, which which means that an incredible amount of, of energy is used to create the seeds, you know, the cross-pollination, and that involves insects and etc. And so these seeds are quite powerful. And they're, of course, each one unique on the level of the DNA, like people. They share a similar genetic lineage and they will you know share other similarities based on the environment which they grow up in but they're also all unique every every seed propagated tea tree is unique and uh, so there's more uh, soul there's more life force in the seeds than there is in in what are called graftings or cuttings which is basically cutting a branch and putting it in the ground and making a new plant which is how most tea is is produced because that's how they create uniformity and how they carry out wanted characteristics and essentially breed tea but the the life force is never as strong in those in those graftings the graftings um you know they they the graftings they, they never live as long so you know lar there's basically two kinds of tea trees large leaf and small leaf the large leaves are the original tea trees in in yunnan the old growth uh, tea trees that basically have a single trunk and roots that go down and then as tea evolved north as it spread north it, it evolved slowly more and more into a bush with smaller and smaller leaves uh, until you get to japan they're so small they're like needles when they're rolled and uh, th these bushes have many trunks and roots that kind of grow outwards and you can have middle leaf to medium leaf and you can basically divide this as much as you want um, but the large leaf tea trees can live thousands of years the oldest one that we found is 3,500 years old. It's in Linjiang. Uh, I gave it a hug and a kiss once for me and once for you. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the small leaf tea trees can live also up to like 800, 900 years. Like in where we went on this year's annual trip in, in Phoenix Mountain in Chaozhou, we saw several seven, 800 year old uh, small leaf tea trees. And in Nanxi also, we saw two, 300 year old. But those are all seed propagated. The graftings can, you know, at most live like 80 years or maybe 100 or, you know, a little more, but they rarely do. They not, they, you know, typically the maximum is like 30, 40 years. And then now more and more as time goes on, the, the, the farmers in plantations actually will tend to, uh, you know, tear them out when their yield decreases. Mm -hmm. So they have, they know what the like maximum yield is. And uh, what a lot of farmers have told me recently is that the uh, the amount of time it's that that trees can stay at that high output is is decreasing. So it used to be 30, 40 years a tree would last, and now they're lasting like 10, 15, or even five years in some places. So they're not uh, they're not outputting as as much as long. So uh, sorry, what affects that? Do you know? All kinds of the other factors that we're going to talk about, the other five aspects, but this, but seed propagation, um, you know, creates the kind of life force that starts the, the tea tree, and so it's like a complete soul as opposed to something that's cloned by people, and so it has more energy, and uh, you, you can also see this in the, you know, birds like to eat tea seeds; they're actually incredibly nutrient dense, and uh, we make oil out of them. It's good for the stomach. It's kind of medicinal. You can cook with it, but. Um, after like two or three generations of grafting, the birds are less likely to become less and less likely to eat the seeds. The seeds are just kind of left and fall to the ground. So um, even they kind of know that there's less nutrients in the, in the tree. So 
the seed propagation creates a you know a more whole being on the spiritual and the physical level and uh, one that can live a lot longer and stronger and more vibrant and contains all of the like DNA of its of its ancestry as opposed to just a part of a plant cut up cut and put into the ground um so it, it there's probably aspects of that that we will understand more scientifically as more research continues into the future um but uh you know every every tea farmer knows that the graftings the cuttings are not as uh strong they're not as vibrant as that which is planted by the seed by seed um and certainly don't live as long and don't live as as uh, with as much health and and vibrancy so that's the first characteristic of living tea is that it's seed propagated which is the natural way so um and that you know there are all kinds of uh, ways that that could happen the, the seeds could be planted by people it could be fully wild which i would say means self-propagated tea often self-propagates it requires the uh, owls and mice so the mice gather caches of tea seeds and put them in the ground and then uh, the owls eat some of the mice and then the mice that don't return to their caches leave them and they sprout mm. because the seeds are heavy so they don't they can't like be, they're not windborne or anything so um so that would be like fully wild and then you know semi-wild maybe which would be like uh trees that were planted by people and then abandoned these are all types of, of propagation but seed propagation is the is the ideal it's a it's a fundamental and it's the first characteristic of living tea mm -hmm. the reason why most tea is uh grown from cuttings is due to the the fact that the big companies want the tea to be um, uniform in taste, right? It's not because it's uh, it's hard to grow tea from seed, or or what is the reason behind that? Or are there several several? Uh, I mean, it is it is more difficult. There's a lot of aspects to it. Number one is the uniformity, maybe of uh, certain flavor characteristics that could be, or you know, early on when they were developing cultivars, which are man-made varietals of tea. Uh, there, in those days, there weren't pesticides, so they were trying to make uh, insect-resistant uh, trees. Was also a, could be a factor. Um, also, when you have seed-propagated tea trees, then every tea tree is unique, and so farming is more difficult um, because they all have different needs, kind of. Mm. And so, um, most of the natural, most of the farmers of living tea that we've talked to, they they literally speak of they speak of what they do in, in with the same kind of language that you would use to talk about child rearing. Like they talk about raising their, their children almost with the tea trees and they all use that kind of language. It's something that I've experienced amongst natural farmers throughout Asia that they all kind of, there's a lot of parallels between the way that they talk about their tea farm and what they do and, and, and child rearing and the way they would talk about raising their own blood. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of, you know, aspect. And so, if you have uh, uniformity, it's just easier. It's like, you know, a lot of people know, many of you may not know this, but before I was a Zen monk, I was actually a kindergarten teacher. And, you know, one of the, half your job as a kindergarten teacher is entertainer. Because if you can keep all the kids on track doing the same thing, then it's easy. But as soon as you lose their attention, they go all off into 8,000 different directions. And then you've got chaos really quick. So it's the same thing. When they're all uniform, it's just easier farming than if they're all different and unique and have different needs. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that 
for the grafting. So one is to breed the qualities that the farmers want, which may be flavor-based, which may be other characteristics of the tea tree. And then, of course, there's just the ease of, of farming as well. So those are the main reasons for grafting is just to get, you know, make it easier, increase yield um, and produce and, and favor certain characteristics that they feel uh, are desirable. Mm-hmm. So the second characteristic of living tea is um, room to grow. Can you uh, speak about that a little bit? Yeah, room to grow is, you know, having enough space between the tea trees. You know, when the Japanese controlled Taiwan, they they planted tea in Sun Moon Lake and the trees and the gardens were abandoned. And, you know, then now they're being cultivated again after like, you know, 50, 80 years of being abandoned. And of course, they're not in nice, neat rows anymore. They have organized themselves in the way that they, they want. You know, that's a way of putting it. I'm anthropomorphizing the tea trees. But, you know, they know the soils over here is more nutrient-dense. They can be more compacted, and over here it's less, and they need more room and space between um, each other. If you read the uh, travel journals of Robert Fortune, which, of course, are fraught with a lot of problems because it's the 19th century, and, you know, he has prejudice, and and there's also the problem of, you know, the fact that he's stealing tea from China to take it for the East India Trade Company to, to India. However, his 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 travel journals are really cool for a tea lover because they do provide a like kind of ethnography of of China in the 19th century and and talking about tea trees and stuff. And uh, near the end of one of his travelogues, he's in the Himalayas and he's asked by the governor there to um, to kind of survey all the, the tea gardens that the East India Trade Company has planted in the Himalayas and see what he thinks about them and how they're going and, you know, what needs to be done or improved. And one of the things that he immediately criticizes and comments about talking about why one garden is doing well and another one isn't is the uh, that there's not enough space between the tea trees. And he talks about all the tea gardens that he saw in China, every one having, you know, such and such amount of feet between um, tea trees. So the the effort to like pack the tea trees together and get you know maximum output and yield um, is a huge part of the problem. The problem is that farmers around the world need to stop thinking in terms of weight. Um, when they think in terms of weight, they start making demands of nature. They start having you know needs and that need to be met. Instead of you know our relationship to nature should be to be grateful for what we're given whatever that amount is, and find ways to increase yield to satisfy, you know, our growing population that don't put any strain on the environment or any aspect of the environment. So, um, you know, giving the, the, them room to grow means they can grow downward and they can grow and they have space between themselves to be healthy. Uh, there's a ratio between the roots and crown of any plant it's not measurable because it's it can be unique from plant to plant especially in seed propagated tea where every tree is unique however if you prune a tea tree then its roots do shrink and this has been proven mm-hmm. so there will be, there's always a ratio between the crown and its roots so the, the more you let the crown grow the deeper the roots go the deeper the roots grow the healthier the tree the higher the crown the more sun it gets the more nutrients from the sunshine and the more deeper roots, which means deep more nutrients from the mountain as well. So giving it room to grow up and room to grow, you know, between the tea trees 
letting them all have enough space to be healthy. No, no animal or living organism can be healthy when it's too packed in and crowded together. So they'll need their, you know, and that's different for every being, what kind of space they need. But tea trees uh, will grow up and strong and healthy when they are given enough space to do so, when they're given room to, to grow. Uh, so that means both in terms of how much space is between each tea tree, but it also means not pruning, right? Not pollarding, which means cutting the tea tree because you think that it uh, increases the yield, which is actually, there's debate about that. There's research that goes both ways. Um, and it's we haven't reached a consensus or conclusion as to whether that actually even works in tea. Um, pollarding, which is like cutting the trees to uh, inspire new growth. Um, and, uh, in, you know, it might be that it works in certain varietals and certain kinds and doesn't in others, but, uh, there's mixed conclusions about whether that works or not. And certainly you affect the vibrancy of the, of the tree itself when you prune it. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean pruning actually isn't the right word because pruning is actually good for the, you know, picking is actually picking the harvesting, the leaves, pruning the tree is actually good. So pruning might not be the right word. Pollarding is better. I mean, like actually chopping it down, keeping it from growing up um, is a, is a characteristic. This is a characteristic that like is often compromised in those types of tea growing that are between organic and living tea. Often because like, you know, you, like in someone like our dear friend, Mr. Sue, he, uh, he meets five of the six characteristics of living tea. The one that he doesn't meet is that he does pollard his tea trees he cuts them down the reason being because it's only his wife and him and if he had to climb every tea tree with a ladder they wouldn't be able to harvest the leaves in time mm -hmm. the two of them it would be impossible for them to harvest their tea so they kind of have to do that so that's more of that's one of the compromises that is often made but their tea trees do have space the proper space between the trees um, they just aren't allowed to grow up but proper living tea you let the trees grow up the stronger their crown, the deeper their roots, the more healthy the tea trees, the more powerful the medicine, right? Hmm. So just like humans and animals, plants also need room to grow, and maybe it's even more important for them because they don't have legs to, you know, walk away or find that room. So we have to give them room. Yeah, although they do move, you know, if you especially if you watch the time lapse of a tea tree, you'd see it dance and move all around. Um, they just move real slow. Hmm. But yes, you're right. They don't move like laterally across, across the ground, um, at least not in a single generation. But mm -hmm. from generation to generation, they can actually move hundreds of kilometers over time. Mm -hmm. Plants and uh, they've there's studies that have been done that show that trees actually migrate uh, in a in, towards environments that are healthy for them. Mm. So over hundreds of years, they'll you know they did a study of birch trees in Europe. And when they call it, when the environment starts to change, they they start migrating elsewhere, and they migrate pretty successfully. They move towards the environments that are good for them mm. over generations, of course. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about also biodiversity, which is one of the characters of living tea as well. Yeah, this is probably the biggest one, the most important one. Um, you know, it all kinds of starts here. Is this is the powerful one? You know, the the catchphrase that that I came up with that. You know, every Chajin should really tattoo on their heart. It's really, it says everything, which is that the leaf is the tree's expression of its relationship to its environment. One more time. The leaf is the 
tree's expression of its relationship to its environment. Leaves do not come out of nowhere. They don't come through extra-dimensional portals. They don't come from nothingness. They are the tree absorbing its environment and then creating those leaves. Hmm. Right? So it absorbs its environment and then it and then it takes the things that it absorbs and it creates leaves. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. So its relationship to its environment, the leaf will be an expression of that relationship. And so if its relationship to its environment is is off, what if, you know, you truck in, you know, fertilizers, even let's say they're organic ones, soybeans, or to- is usually what's used here in Taiwan, mixed with compost and maybe some manure, and you fertilize the tree, then you're essentially feeding it from an outside ecology. So it's not eating its own environment anymore. Right? It's not thriving off of its own environment. It's not it's not connected to its own environment. It's like a patient in a hospital on an IV. You take away that fertilizer and it dies because there's too many trees there. Or because you want more flushes in a year. Because traditionally tea only flushes in the spring. With some rare exceptions like Yunnan, which is essentially a rainforest. So they have a spring and autumn harvest and a few other places do too. But really to get tea to flush outside of spring, you have to fertilize it. Again, that could be organic or chemical fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer or organic fertilizer. Um, but you have to fertilize to get it to flush more. And then you weaken it. Mm-hmm. Because if it's only flushing once a year, that flush is, is, the, is the absorption of all the energy of one year and then put out. So it's, of course, it's going to be richer and stronger and more juicy. Whereas when you're fertilizing and the tree is then flushing like four times a year, each of those flushes is going to be weaker. And the tree also will die sooner because it's working too hard. So it won't live as long. So the environment really creates the tea. The tea is its terroir, its climate, its soil, all of those things. And the soil, you know, soil is not, we have to stop thinking of soil as stuff. Soil is not a medium of stuff that you put seeds in. Soil is, a, is living matter. It's a living being. It's like a stomach. It's just full of life and churning. And uh, in, there's recent studies done here in Taiwan that show that the, nu- the nutrients and organic matter in the soil of tea plantations using um, fertilizers has gone down from 100 to 80 to so-and-so and so-and-so and recently down to 4% of what it was even 40 years ago. Four mm-hmm. percent of what it was years ago. What used to be meters of soil has also gone, you know, become only just a, a little bit on the surface, centimeters. So, soil is where the biodiversity starts, and that that active uh, soil. But then that extends out to the to everything. When you spray pesticides, right? You start with even that idea that there are pests the idea that there are unwanted organisms in nature. If you're really going to stand back with a clear, open heart and clear mind, let's say after an hour of meditation, and look down on this earth and separate species into wanted and unwanted, I think we would be at the top of the unwanted list, (laughs) hated and despised by all other species on this planet. Um, so the idea that there are good insects and bad insects is, a, is a, oh, these insects produce these qualities that we want, so they're good. 
and these insects do this thing that we don't want, so they're bad. That whole philosophy is wrong. This is why, you know, natural farming, a lot of farmers say natural farming isn't a method, it's a philosophy. Living tea is a philosophy, it's not a method, right? Because the method will be different in different locations. But the idea that there's unwanted insects is, is you know, is already off. And when you take, when you drive away insects, you drive away the things that eat those insects and the things that eat those things and the things that eat those things and then all of their poop and dead bodies which then go back into the soil and make that soil vibrant and make it uh, the, what it is, a living, churning being. It's a life force. It's energy is what it really is. It's energy. That's what soil is. And it's not stuff. It's not dead. It's not a, just like a matter. It's, it's a living force. And it's uh, one of the greatest mysteries, is, you know, because we all come out of that because that's where all our food comes from. Whether you're vegetarian or not, you either eat plants or you eat things that eat plants. So it's all plant-based, um, ultimately. And so, you know, this rich biodiversity is so complex and subtle and all the webs are all connected in so many deep and powerful ways. And the leaf is the expression of that connection. And so if that connection is not rich and full then the medicine of the leaf will not be rich and full. And those connections go so, so deep. Uh, you know, one of the saints of modern agriculture, the philosopher and farmer, uh, Fukuoka, the Japanese man, he has a saying that I like a lot. He, uh, he, he's, he, uh, you should read his books. He's passed away, but his, his books are left and his teachings are left and uh, they're quite profound and influential to, on all the lives of, of most humans that are awake and, and thinking the way that we are. And, uh, he said that in college he had a biology professor that used to always say that religion and philosophy have no place in the world of science. And some years later he was walking in a field of barley and he looked around, it was conventionally grown barley, and he looked around and he uh, realized that science has no place in the world of barley. Hmm. So what he was saying is like the human mind of analysis and dividing and dissecting and trying to control certain a desirable aspects of an environment. All of that isn't relevant from the Barley's perspective. From the Barley's perspective, it's a part of a whole, and there are no such thing as unwanted this or that. And even in terms of insects, you know, when you let the ecology go, it will balance itself. Why farmers need that is because their definition of their philosophy, their definition of, of balance is within a single year. I need X amount of weight. I need X amount of yield within this year. And so within this year, they need to control so-called pests. Whereas if you don't think in terms of a single year, which a single year is a wink of an eye in terms of nature. The earth is billions of years old. In terms of a natural ecology, a year is nothing. And so, in you know, recently we were at uh, Master Gu's farm in Beipu. He's a he's an Eastern beauty farmer, and we came across this tree that had been like just decimated by insects. It just covered in insect bites all over the place. And I was like, "Oh, is this tree gonna die?" And he was like, "No, the roots are still strong. There's new growth coming out. You can see. And since the insects have eaten it all, they'll move on to other trees. And over the next two or three years, this one will come back." And, uh, you know, even if it were to die, which in this case, it's not going to, then its body would just be fertilizer and it would grow in, into other, other forms. But 
the point, then he made another point, which was to say that, you know, when a lot of insects come, that attracts things that eat those insects, like spiders and other predatory insects like mantis, ladybugs, and also birds and other things. And they come and they eat, they, they reduce the population and balance is once again restored. And not only that, they poop all around the field and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And when you have other plants that are growing all around the, the tea, then, you know, tea is actually produces tannins. It's bitter. It's astringent. Insects don't prefer it. They'll mostly go to other plants. So when you see other plants, when there's an active forest, then, you know, the trees are very rarely decimated. That tree was decimated because his is, you know, one of these in-between natural farming. It's it's above organic, but it's not quite living tea. Mm-hmm. If you go to an actual living tea farm, like also recently we went to Master Gaoding's farm in in um, in northern Taiwan. And, you know, you look in his farm, which is fully living tea. And there you won't find trees that have been decimated like Master Goose because there's so many plants and other things growing all around. And in those environments, you look at the tea trees and the tea trees themselves are just, you know, they are whole ecosystems onto themselves. When you look at a living tea tree, it's covered in like dozens of species of mold and beneficial ferns and orchids and insects and spider webs living in it and other things. So it's a it's a whole world unto itself, even the tea tree itself. And that doesn't include the soil underneath, mm-hmm. which is full of, uh, you know, mushrooms and microorganisms and bacteria and all kinds of living beings are down in the soil too, moving and thriving and living their own lives. And, you know, when you go to these conventional farms, that's one of the huge differences is you you look at the, the soil, the soil of a living tea plantation or even one of these natural farming plantations or even an organic plantation is so much more loamy and rich and full. And these conventional ones, the soil slowly gets dry and powdery and turns into like uh, dust and then it can't retain water. So the roots of the tea tree start coming up out of the ground. And then this also causes other problems because those chemicals won't absorb in the ground. And so they start to run off and cause problems to the, you know, water table of other parts of the, of, of the, you know, of people's drinking water, et cetera. And it can also cause uh, erosion and mudslides and things like this too, when you're farming in this way. So uh, the biodiversity is a huge thing and it's rich and full and, and there's, it has so many layers that go very, very, very subtle. You know, so subtle that it's, it, it's beyond our ability to rationally understand the connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's evidence that actually, there's evidence that shows that birdsong influences the health of plants. And when you think about it, you, every place you go where that's green, there's birds there. Mm-hmm. And so the song of the birds, somehow the trees are influenced by it. There's some research that suggests this. And that would just be one extremely subtle way in which the, the things you know, connect. When they introduce, go watch on YouTube that video about the introducing the wolves into Yellowstone Park in America and how just you know, a few dozen wolves that were reintroduced not only changed every species in the park, it also changed the geology. They had to make a word. It's called a trophism. It's when an apex species influences not only all the species beneath it, but also the geology. It moved the rivers, in other words. Mm. They moved the rivers because the you know they changed the grazing patterns of the deer, which caused new forests, which moved rivers. It actually mm-hmm. changed the geology. So there's so many subtle connections and 
flows and, and, and things in the web. And it's much better if we don't meddle. It's much better if we not say, oh, these are desirable organisms and these are not desirable organisms according to our criteria. And, and work instead in harmony with nature. Cooperate. Develop science and develop agricultural technology that works in harmony with, with all the forces of an ecology. And so, you know, if we were to develop that instead of trying to like decimate it, isolate certain factors and, and, uh, and poison parts of, of the earth, you know, it's amazing how so many of us, so many of my brothers and sisters on this planet right now have gotten so used to ingesting so many toxins in any given day. It's just so desensitized, just a shrug is enough to talk about the life and death of millions of animals that, you know, feed us. And the fact, not even their death, but that they live terrible lives, that they're, that they're not healthy, they're fed hormones and, and things that they shouldn't be eating, and they're not healthy. And so, of course, when you consume all that, you just poison yourself. And, you know, now just going down to the corner store and eating a bunch of toxins is just a natural everyday occurrence. We're desensitized to how much toxicity we are ingesting. And that's really sad. And it's sad that it's impacting all the species of this earth. Species are going extinct like mad. And we're, you know, ultimately all this is going to come back to us. It's all going to be the cause of effects that are very painful. And so we have to address this problem, but we also have to, you know, stay positive and focus on the light, and focus on inclusion, not exclusion. We move forward through inclusion, including people, um, including farmers. They're the, you know, they're they're a huge part of it, and we have to learn to respect them. Over, you know, thousands of years of feudalism, farming more and more became a low job, a classless job, for bumpkins or whatever you want to say, and uh, something that people don't want to do. But you, we have to start cultivating respect for farmers. Farmers are the masters of this earth. It doesn't matter what you do, doctor, lawyer, you know, teacher, anything you do, you do it because they're farmers. If there weren't farmers, then you wouldn't have food and you'd have to spend all your time making and growing food and you wouldn't have time to do that thing that you do. So whatever you do, you do it because of farmers. We have to start cultivating respect for them, respecting them, taking care of them financially. We don't really have a right to ask them to steward the land in a certain way if we're not taking care of them and their families. Mm-hmm. And that needs to come first. And so we need to start, you know, changing the, the way we relate to farmers. And and uh, that that's a big way forward. But biodiversity is the biggest of the of the living tea characteristics, right? One more time, right? The leaf is the tree's expression of its relationship to its environment. And so the environment, the terroir creates the tea, mm. right? You can look at the leaves from a conventional and an organic farm, even if they're both plantations, and the plant, organic one will have thicker, juicier leaves. If you go to living tea, where the tea f- flushes only once a year, right? Recently, when we were at Master Ga- uh, Gao's uh, living tea uh, garden in the forest, somebody asked him, one of our guests asked him, like, how often do you harvest? And his answer was, like, I harvest whenever nature gives me leaves mm-hmm. once a year. And the amount that she gives me, I'm grateful for. And so that, you know, that kind of tea is going to have a year's worth of juice in it. It's going to have the juice of all those organisms and that rich environment. Once you walk through a living tea garden, you know, it's hard to go back to a plantation. One of our guests said that on that trip, like, wow, now that I've seen this, you can't even go to a plantation anymore. 
This changes everything. You can feel it when you walk in. You can feel the vibrancy, the health. The way it changes the way you breathe. You start to calm down. Literally. It's just powerful, powerful, that amount of uh, eco-activity and its influence on us. And that influence, of course, extends to the leaf and when we drink it. So this is a huge part of the medicine, is the connection to nature. And that nature has to be healthy. And the tree's relationship to its environment has to be healthy for this to be medicinal and, and to be used in this way. So this is the most powerful of the six characteristics. Mm. So natural state of nature is balance. And if we try to meddle or in our narrow-mindedness, when we try to control a few parameters, that throws nature off, in other words. Yeah, it can, you know. You know, we're we're also a part of nature and we have that kind of balance in us and we can take and give and find ways and use our brilliant minds to develop agricultural technology and agricultural methods which will change region to region, but which uh, not not only don't harm the environment, but foster it, you know. So, and this will increase the quality of the things we consume. It will increase the quality of of uh, of our of our life and of of this planet and you know living teas are by so much better to drink of course mm. once you've had one it's so 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 obvious that these factors are huge and make a huge difference in the medicinal quality of the tea this is why i'm loath to i try sometimes i forget myself but i try to not call tea crap or low quality or crummy or whatever you want to whatever derogatory term you want to use because It's never the tea. If you leave tea alone in a forest, it turns out just fine. It's always humans. They either are using improper agricultural techniques or they lack the skill to process the tea in the way that it should be processed. And that's what makes tea low quality. It's always the human element, not the nature. If you leave nature alone, the tea is medicinal and powerful, always. Mm -hmm. I also like how you compared the soil to like a stomach. If we look at it this way, it's easy to see why it's not good to put chemicals in it the same way as it's not good to put a lot of weird chemicals in our bodies as well. <clears throat> and that actually segues perfectly into the next characteristics of living tea, which is having no agrochemicals. No, none of the evil triad, right? <laughs> Weed killers, fertilizers, pesticide. Uh, earlier I mentioned that the nutrients and organic matter in the soil in Taiwan is going down. That has a lot to do with fertilizing 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 even organic fertilizing which is ideal you can you can create an organic plantation and you can organically fertilize in a way that um, is extremely sustainable they already have that kind of dialed in in certain locations like mr xie and ming jian who we all visit when we come here for 10-day courses he has an organic plantation uh, but in living tea you have to you, you have to have like no fertilizer so it's not even no synthetic fertilizer but no fertilizer of any kind Uh, because when you're fertilizing, then the tree is not learning to get its nutrients that it needs from its environment. And so in the in the case of living tea, it isn't just no agrochemicals. It's no agrochemicals like pesticides or weed killers. Actually, it's you know it's better to not have any weeding in living tea. Just let the if you let the trees grow up, you don't have to worry about the weeds. Hmm. Farmers only have to worry about the weeds and the height of the weeds if the if they're pruning the tea trees. Which is, again, one of those natural farming techniques somewhere in between organic plantation tea and living tea. So if you're allowing the trees to grow up, they'll grow really tall and you don't have to worry about the undergrowth anymore. Um, and so letting all that be is, is the ideal of living tea. And so, of course, you're not using any, any 
um, chemical weed killers, but you're also not fertilizing at all, synthetic or organic, uh, because you're allowing the trees to grow strong. It's like giving your teenagers independence. So, you know, as a child grows older and older, we should give them more and more independence so they learn how to be, take care of themselves and be self-reliant. The trees need to be self-reliant to grow strong. And so they need to be able to take care of themselves and get their food from their environment. And if their environment's rich and biodiverse, you won't need to add fertilizers because they'll be able to get what they need from their own environment as they had for hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years before humans came along. They're good at it. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They know how to be a part of an ecology. So all that will work itself out. And so uh, living tea is no fertilization of any kind, no you know weeding ideally of any kind, and no, of course, pesticides, which again, drive off insects, which drive off other things, which upset the whole balance of the ecology and are toxic. You know, it's important to remember earlier, we were talking about respecting farmers. It's important to remember farmers are the first victims of these agrochemicals. The World Health Organization says around 200 to 250,000 humans die every year from pesticide exposure. Mm. That's a huge amount of our brothers and sisters that are dying as a result of these chemicals. 200 to 250,000 humans are dying every year from exposure to pesticides. I repeat that because that is a huge number. I myself was blown away by that, right? There's also hundreds and hundreds of pesticides and other agrochemicals that have been recalled Hundreds. In other words, they were sold and marketed as fit for human consumption and then later recalled because they were found out to be detrimental to human health. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of them have been thus recalled. Like famous ones like DDT is, is, a, is a, you know, or a Roundup weed killer. You know, there's all kinds of famous ones, but there's tons. And that's just, you know, goes to show you these, these chemicals are, are really not conducive to health. Have you ever been around them? If you've ever been around a, a plantation when pesticides were sprayed, you can't get within meters of it. It gives you a huge headache. It's one of the most ungodly forces I've ever been near. It is so toxic. It literally, you know, it ends in aside. Anything that ends in aside as a suffix of a, of a word is not good, right? It means death. And it, it literally is kind of chemical death. And you go near it and you're just like, whoa, you, you know, you need to put on a mask. It's just really, really terrible mm-hmm. stuff. And, um, you know, even if they can prove that some amount of it is acceptable in the human body, why are we as a species, again, why have we grown so used to ingesting so many toxins? There's studies that show that we ingest more toxins in a 24-hour period than 17th century people did in 70 years of life. That's insane. You know, why have we grown so used to this? Why is there an acceptable amount of toxicity? Why wouldn't we... Why wouldn't it be zero? Mm. You know, I'm often, you know, other than the fact that we just inhabit samsara, sometimes I do like step back and I'm bewildered at how with all of our incredible brilliance, all of our technology and our ability to create comfort, all of the, the advancements that we've made in the last thousand years, with all of our advancements, why have we created a world that's not conducive to human happiness and health? Why have we created a world that is is so frustrating for human happiness and health? It's so hard to be healthy and to be a healthy human psychically and physically in the world that we've created. You know, why wouldn't we have used all of our technology and et cetera to create a world 
conducive to our happiness and health. I, I do believe we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I understand this is samsara, and I understand that there's a lot of human greed and other forces that are involved. But And, and so the b- bewilderment is kind of silly uh, because it's obvious why we haven't created that world. But I do believe we do have the brilliance already to create a world that is conducive to human happiness and health. And, uh, you know, one of the first steps forward is getting rid of all these agrochemicals and allowing nature to grow. Um, and if we're going to fertilize, use organic fertilizers. And mm. if we're going to control insects, use natural means, mm-hmm. introducing frogs or ladybugs or, you know, essential oils or whatever, but using, you know, having as little impact as possible in the situations where we need to increase yield. And then alongside that, having some some places where it's more wild and free nature. Mm-hmm. Like having, you know, organic plantation tea, which is sustainable and compromises in some ways, but it allows us to increase yield so we can have enough tea that everybody can have tea in the world. And then also have some living tea alongside that, which is more deep and powerful for those that need it. Mm-hmm. So creating that world that you spoke about that would be conducive to human health and living, I think requires also the shift away from the narrow-minded focus of, you know, me and my family and how can how I can provide for my family or or for myself and like think of broader terms that we're not limited to the, just this body. It's not just about my family, and uh, we all inhabit this one planet and, and this ecosystem so we're all connected in in that level and also in time as well like it's not about this year that i i need to get this this much crop uh for this year but so i i will have a livelihood that lasts me and and the generations to come yeah i mean farmers need to you know step back and realize i have this land to steward because of my ancestors and if my descendants are to have it i need to stop destroying it as i told you the life of the tea trees have, have gone down from 40 years to like 10 in taiwan the soil's depleting mm. um there's certainly an influence that's demonstrable and uh, st- and statistically already recorded and the, the effects of this and this is why the taiwanese government is investing billions of dollars towards organic farming uh, because they know these things mm-hmm. um and, and you know these chemicals and the runoff in a mountainous island like this you know, you, that's what you have to remember. Also, these chemicals run down and affect everything beneath it. There's places in Taiwan where the water has become so polluted that they can't, uh, people can't bathe anymore. You know, every every few months or, you know, at least once or twice a year, they have to shut the water down in Taipei. Because after a super heavy rainfall, so much of these agrochemicals run down into the reservoir for the city that the water treatment plant can't, there's, it's too concentrated. They can't clean. They have to flush their tanks. Mm. And so the city will go without water for like a half a day or a day. And wow. that happens, you know, pretty regularly. So the government obviously knows. They're obviously invested. Um, you know, these agrochemical com- companies all, also have some clout. So this is, is a political issue, um, you know. And so, you know, what what we can do as as people is of course we can make the right choices vote with your dollar uh, support organic farmers uh, in every possible way promote them you know as we're doing with global tea hut and as we will continue to do in the future when we build light meets life i want to have conferences for organic farmers and we'll publicize what they have to say 
Mm-hmm. We'll fly them. We'll house them. We'll give them three days to talk to each other, and we'll publicize what they talk about. Um, so, you know, do your best to support in any way you can. Um, and also, you know, there is a, another solution, which is which is political. So maybe write your whatever. If you if you live in a country or a place where you do have some voice and you feel so inclined, maybe write your your congressman, senator, or you know whatever whatever politician is is near to you. If you think that can make a difference, and tell them how you feel, because um, the two most obvious ways to move forward in organic is is. You know, one, consumers make choices. If consumers all demand healthy, clean products, then farmers will have to comply or they go out of business. Mm-hmm. And, the, and farmers are resilient. They'll change really quiet, really, really fast. They'll change their ways if they need to, right? De- demand comes before supply. So as soon as there's demand, <clears throat> the supply will increase. And then the other easier way, maybe, uh, is, is politically. If the government bans agrochemicals, then they're done. You know, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. If we if we have if we get our our political entities on board and start moving towards clean earth, uh, that's an, that's an easy way to move forward. Mm-hmm. Just outlaw these things. Um, so, right. Uh, okay, let's talk about the next characteristic, which is uh, irrigation, or rather, no irrigation. Why is that important? Uh, yeah, no irrigation. Actually. The uh, earlier I was talking about Robert Fortune and his travelogue and how at the end of his travelogue he's visiting the uh, East India plantations in the Himalayas and he's asked by the governor there to evaluate them and he's talking about the ones that are working and the ones that aren't working and why they aren't working because he had traveled extensively through all the tea regions of China and so they considered him an expert and so he he was you know sharing with them what was working and what wasn't and he actually says in there specifically. Um, that one of the reasons that the the areas in the Himalayas where their gardens aren't thriving is because of irrigation. And he says, literally the sentences in there, the Chinese never irrigate their tea trees. Mm. So already in, you know, this is the middle of the 19th century. So like 1850 and, you know, or let's say 1840 to 1850 when he's traveling through the tea growing regions of of China. And he traveled quite extensively. Um, And, you know, he's, he's saying like never quite pronouncedly, they never irrigate. Uh, they say they never irrigated their tea. Um, the reason is because, you know, when you irrigate, then again, it's just like the fertilizer. You're bringing in something from outside to the tea tree and it's weak. Mm-hmm. It needs to dig roots down and get that deep mountain water. What makes tea special as a plant is that it grows in high mountains and has deep roots, that it brings nature to society. That's an ancient Chinese saying. It brings the mountain to the city. Mm-hmm. And the mountains are sacred in Chinese philosophy. The word for a holy person is actually mountain person because ordinary people live in the cities and monks and sages live out in the mountains. Bringing the mountain to the city is a huge part of what tea does for us medicinally. It, it connects us to nature. And so if, it does, if it's not biodiverse, if it's not eating the nutrients of its environment, if it's not drinking the water of the mountain, of course it's not bringing that to us. What it's bringing to us is some sterile, watered-down version that's half human, half plant. Mm. Because it's ingesting chemicals. It's ingesting fertilizers we've made. We're pumping water onto it. It's not living from its environment. It's not taking in its environment. It's not absorbing its environment. And then it's not creating leaves that are an expression of a healthy, thriving environment. 
it needs to dig roots down and get that mountain water. That's a huge aspect of what makes fine tea is that deep, clear mountain spring water that nourishes the plants. And then the soil and the environment and the sun and all that, you know, if, if that's all healthy, then you get, um, then the tree is absorbing the mountain and the terroir of the mountain and giving it to us. And this is a huge part of the medicine of tea. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, irrigating is akin to like fertilizing, telling the, the trees that I want this amount of leaf, like give, give me this much, give me more. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you're irrigating, then you, you can increase yield. I mean, you can support more trees in a smaller plot of land, right? Whereas if you don't irrigate, some of those would die and then you, they would, but then they'd have room to grow. They would yeah. find their own room to grow, like those abandoned plantations I told you about earlier. And they'll, and they'll dig deep roots and get that mountain water, which makes the, them healthy and rich and strong. That's what they need. Hmm. They need that water. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sixth characteristic of living tea is um, respectful relationship between farmer and uh, the tea. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the character for tea in Chinese, the top radical is herb, the bottom radical is wood, and the middle is man. Tea is a, is a dialogue between the human, the person, and, and nature. And so every farmer in Asia will tell you great tea is a combination of heaven, earth, and human. Heaven being weather. The right weather has to show up to make a fine tea. Even, even living tea farmers will not make fine tea every year because the right weather has to come. There has to be the fortune of heaven. And then the earth is all the things we're talking about, the soil, the, the leaving the trees to grow, the environment, the biodiversity, all that. And then the human element. Which is the you know the the is one the gong fu the skill mm-hmm. of the processing, but it's also what I told you earlier. Natural farming is a philosophy. It's not a method. Mm-hmm. It's a philosophy. It's this philosophy. It's a philosophy. So the method will be different in different places, and some natural farmers will compromise on some of these six. These six are the ideal, the pinnacle, but there are some in between levels, and some of those are necessary in certain environments, uh, and it's okay. So we have to, you know, we have to look at that. But, you know, ultimately it's a philosophy. This is a, a way of relating. So long as the farmer is relating towards nature as stuff, as a product, as money, then the tea will taste of coin. Mm-hmm. Then the tea will be hollow because it's not made with love. You can't make anything well with love, without love, right? We've all tasted a so-called conventional store-bought tomato and then a tomato grown in someone's garden who loves growing tomatoes. And they're very different in every way. Mm. In the way they taste and smell and feel in your body, it's different in every way. So having a farmer who's oriented in the right way is essential. When their philosophy is right, when they love tea and they love nature, right? Mm. That's, a, that's an essential characteristic of living tea. Uh, recently on our Global Tea trip, we stayed with Master Chun in Anxi. Perfect example of this. Uh, the August issue coming out is all about him and about Taiwanian. And he's just loves nature, loves tea, loves what he does. He's gotten successful recently um, and, and even wealthy, but he hasn't changed his clothes or the way he lives. He's still just a simple farmer and he still spends all his time with tea and working to improve his tea every year. And he just loves tea. And that, that kind of love for what you do and that love for nature the nature that provides this is essential. You know, one of the things I say when I go to conferences, you know, I love tea conferences, just like I love 
Global Tea Up magazine. I'm a tea geek. It's, I'm a huge tea geek. And I love talking about teapots and tea roasting and tea culture and all things tea. But if there isn't any tea, then all of those things, all of those conversations are moot. Mm-hmm. Right? When your child is sick, parents don't have discussions about how to cut their hair or whether they should study flute or violin or which class they should attend. When your child's sick, the only discussion is medicine and healing. Mm-hmm. And our child is sick. And earlier, I talked about how most tea farmers discuss tea growing in a way that is very analogous to child rearing. They use a lot of similar terms in Chinese. And so, you know, there's a, there's a real, this analogy really works. And so having healthy tea, it's like having healthy children. It requires healthy parents mm-hmm. and healthy parenting. And, and that means the right f- philosophy and one based on love, not money. Right? If you're raising children like the villain of a lot of cartoons is like the, you know, and, and other children's movies is like the, the keeper of an orphanage who's just doing it for money. Hmm. and has lots of kids like i remember like the one of my favorite books when i was a kid got made into a movie by steven spielberg the bfg and that's an example right of an orphanage where the the owner is an evil villain and they're just collecting children to get more money like of course those children will all have problems you need a mother who's and father who who are having children out of love and want to raise those children with love and do their best and create an environment that's healthy for those children so they can grow up strong and and strong psychically and physically in in every way and you you have to create a positive environment and the same thing to create a a, a living tea garden requires a parent who who loves and who's willing to sometimes go against the grain they might get flack right literally i've heard stories of tea farmers living tea farmers getting flack from their neighbors because their tea farm is ugly <laughs> because of all the weeds and things that are growing and it should look more like a manicured lawn, mm. right? Some of our guests recently were just telling me about their parents had this beautiful yard. I, I've actually been to their parents' house and it was covered in like tr- all these different varieties of trees and plants and flowers and beautiful things. And the neighbors complain because the neighbors all have like manicured lawns mm-hmm. and they don't like that their yard is filled with all these trees like a forest. It's natural and beautiful. And then so the neighbors are complaining. So sometimes you have to go against the norm even you have to go against the you know the the pressure of others who don't understand in order to raise your children well like all the children around you might be eating candy and mcdonald's and junk food and their kids are getting unhealthy as a result there's going to be a whole generation of americans that have diabetes right so to raise your child healthy you're going to have to go against some of that they're going to you know you're going to you're going to have to take a different road my mother did that when Mm. we grew up we had no junk food and she fought us and uh all out of love Mm. so you got to have a loving parent that's what this sixth one's about the human's essential Mm -hmm. human's a huge part of the tea and our philosophy is a huge we're at the top of everything on this planet and that's why i said earlier there's only the human problem there's only the human heart problem and if we sort that out, all the other problems work themselves out because we're genius. We're brilliant. And if, if we're oriented in the right way, we can, cre- we can do scientific research along that right way. And we can create technology and method along that right way. And we can advance our societies and advance our technology and advance our life 
and advance everything that we do along a positive road. Of course we can. Mm -hmm. Earlier you uh, talked about tea trees that are really old. And um, so Aboriginal people have uh, always looked up to um, old tea trees and, and built altars. And, and some of the, those tea trees have been in their family for generations. So they've become part of their, their family already. Can you uh, speak about that a little bit as well? Well, originally all the tea trees were wild, so they weren't like it didn't belong to anyone. Mm -hmm. you know, tea wasn't, you know, tea's been used by humans for twenty thousand years at least, and domesticated only maybe a thousand, two thousand, roughly years. So before that, it was it was all wild, and uh, it was just went. I mean, you had you went and gathered it, like most things. We were hunters and gatherers for millions of years before we were farmers. Mm -hmm. We've only been farming ten thousand years. We've been hunting and gathering for arguably a hundred thousand years, and and even before that, if you look at, you know, pre-homo sapien hominids or include them. So we're, you know, it was all wild. And then even 1850, you if you read Robert Fortune's travelogue and you look at other Chinese texts, almost all the gardens were living tea or some form of natural farming, of mm -hmm. course. So they were something above what we call today organic. Organic's like the bare minimum. But we have a larger population, and so like this is an age of compromise, and we kind of need all the levels of tea. We need the supreme, we need the living tea at the top, we need the high-yield plantations at the bottom, but we also need each of these levels has to have its own clean criteria so that the tea is healthy for the earth and for the ecology. It's healthy for the farmers who work with it. It doesn't damage their bodies and give them cancer, etc. And then it's healthy for us, the consumer, it should be healthy every from every direction for the earth, for the farmers, and for us, the, the consumers. So, you know, all the, the old trees, you know, whether they were gardens that were owned by people or wild gardens, of course, they were revered. Um, you know, if they were wild, they were associated with, you know, they're associated with every spiritual practice in China. I say four. Usually you hear about the three big ones, Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. But, you know, Mainstream people always have a bad habit of leaving out the indigenous people. So let's say the four spiritual traditions of China and include the shamans. And all four of these use tea. Shamans used it, obviously. The Taoists use it to connect to nature. The Buddhists viewed it as essential mindfulness practice. And the Confucians viewed it, viewed it as a way to cultivate inner dignity or what they call Ren. So it was used by every spiritual tradition. It was revered by all Chinese people, um, top to bottom, still is. Even if they use it today only as a beverage, if you mention its higher qualities, they'll nod their head. They all know. It goes back, you know, so many thousands of years. And if the gardens belonged to people, it was their livelihood. So, of course, they respected the trees. If you had an apple orchard that had fed and clothed and housed your family for like five generations, of course, you would respect those trees. They cultivated deep respect. And that this respect for nature is a is a huge part of the sixth characteristic of living tea. It's what makes living tea, living tea is that have that, you know, you could say it's a respect for nature, respect for the trees, respect for what they give, you know. So we need to find, you know, all kinds of compromise. At the bare minimum, organic plantation tea. Then all the natural farming methods, which compromise, you know, one, two or three of these these six characteristics. And then the, you know, the the top, which is living tea. So all of these need to be 
cultivated because we need tea for everybody in the world. If all tea was living tea, there wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. And it would be so expensive. Very few people would be able to drink tea. I don't want that. So we compromise. We compromise so everyone can have tea. But using agrochemicals, using these conventional farming methods isn't really a compromise. It's a compromise in space, but not in time. What I mean by that is, yes, it gets tea to everybody now, but it's not sustainable. So in the future, there won't be any tea. Hmm. We'll destroy ourselves if we continue these practices, these industrial practices of agriculture and production. If we continue these, these you know, highly, highly pollutant life ways, right, of agriculture and industry, we will ultimately destroy ourselves. Hmm. And, uh, they're, they're, you know, so we are facing our own extinction if we don't, if we don't change our ways and start using, you know, more intelligence and, you know, more, more applying our sciences and our, uh, and our, all of our wonderful technology, our wonderful ability to research and explore scientifically. We need to start guiding the focus of those, of that research with our ethics, with our heart, because we can research down all kinds of lines that terrible scientist who worked for Hitler was doing all kinds of nefarious research. Terrible stuff. Even if he he discovers something out of that research, like what he's discovered is, is useless towards the betterment of humanity. So, you know, we have the ability to research all kinds of things, but just because we can research something doesn't mean we should. Just because we can split the atom and create nukes doesn't mean we should be making nuclear weapons. So, you know, we, we can research weaponry and then we can research uh, healthy ways of increasing yield and creating enough food to sustain our population without impacting nature. Mm-hmm. Right. We can, we can do that. We can, we can focus our uh, skills and talents and intelligence with our hearts. So our, like our mind is the beam of light and our heart is the, prism or the magnifying glass and we we cho- we can use our heart to choose what we explore as people and uh, use the intelligence of the heart which is connected knows when you're out in the forest that you are a part of the soil a part of the insects a part of the sun a part of the rain that it's all in you it's flowing through you it's a part of you this is a big part of what the medicine of tea does it connects us to nature and when you feel connected to nature you don't need a philosophy of environmentalism. A philosophy of environmentalism will never work because it's always going to have to combat against human greed and other forces that are also powerful. But you know, once you realize that your loved ones, their body is 50 or 70% water. So every time you turn to your beloved or your children and say, I love you, you're saying, I love you, water. When you feel a part of nature, right? If I, if I, try to, if I come with poison and then try and inject your children, you don't need a philosophy to, to protect them. You automatically protect them. Instinctually. Right? So in the same way, when you feel a part of nature, when you realize that the plants are as, as essential for your body as any of the organs in your body, that you and I, in a very real way of talking, are the plant's decision to walk around. 
that the, the seeding, growing, flowering, seeding, sprouting, growing, flowering, seeding, sprouting, growing, flowering of plants is the life and breath of this planet. It's the wisdom and memory of this planet as well. And we are that, all that we are. Every time you move your body, that's plant energy moving. You are the plants. You can they, they make the fresh water on this earth that you drink. They make all the air that you breathe. They make all the food that you eat. They are everything. And so you are already connected. And when you feel that, when you breathe that in, there's no need for a philosophy. When you, when you get a little sensitive and you realize the toxicity of food, you don't want it anymore. Just a little bit of exercise and meditation and you realize you just take that stuff in and it, you don't want it anymore. There's no more craving for it. It doesn't feel good to eat it. Even if it tastes good. It, doesn't feel, it ultimately doesn't feel good and it doesn't satisfy. Hmm. So, you know, as we awaken and move forward, uh, we do have the capacity to solve all these issues. And uh, there will have to be different kinds of tea, organic plantation tea, natural farming techniques in the middle, and living tea at the top. And as Chajin, of course, we always want living tea. We always want this highest level because this is where most of the medicine is, where most of the juju is, right? This is why I don't read a lot of scientific studies about the influences of tea. I'm not interested really in research on like what tea does to what, you know, either the negative impact of tea, it had fluoride or blah, 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 or the positive. Because whenever they do those studies, at least all the studies I've seen, maybe there are exceptions. If you find one, send it to us. But almost all the ones I've seen, the, the studies are based on like conventionally grown tea bags. They're not based on like living tea. Do some research on that and you'll see it's very medicinal. It's very good for the body. As I said, 90% of negative symptoms in my experience, uh, which my experience, of course, is limited. Take it with a grain of salt. But in my experience, 90% of people who have negative experiences when drinking tea, that it tends to go away when they switch to clean tea. And so we need healthy tea on all levels, in tea bags, as beverage, in bottles, and then all the way up to living tea. And as Chajin, uh, let the living tea come into your life, you know. But, uh, you know, if you're asking where you can get it, you know, of course, we're, we're trying our best to support Living Tea with, with the magazine and also organic plantation. So 12 months out of the year, we, you know, all of our teas are clean, um, maybe not organic, but in terms of certification, but certainly chemical free, all of them and sustainably produced. And then we send some Living Teas too. And through Light Meets Life, we create a fundraiser with some Living Teas and or natural farm teas. Um and uh, beyond that, you know, in our tradition, we have a saying, which is, as the person seeks the leaf, the leaf seeks the person. When you start respecting tea as a living being, as a spirit, as a plant medicine, she'll find you. You don't have to seek. It'll mm. just happen. It'll just start to happen. It already is. You're listening to this podcast, so she's finding you. She's in this voice that you're hearing. I mean that literally. I, you know, for the last 30 years, I've drank liters of tea every day. It's in every cell in my body. It's in my consciousness. It is my consciousness. We are symbiotic, this plant and I. And so in my voice is the frequency of tea. Mm. Um, and that's kind of foo-foo. I understand that, but but it is what it is. Mm. So um, support living tea, support organic. You do make a difference. Um, my teacher, my Zen master, used to always say right now it's hard because our karmas, we have all these ghost, what he called ghost karmas, which is like in the ancient days, people lived in villages. And so the effect of all their causes their actions the reaction of their action the effects of their actions were immediate 
when you step on big dude, he punches you in the face. When you steal your neighbor's chicken, the rest of your neighbors team up on you. Like the effects of everything was immediate. But nowadays, some of our choices affect people on the other side of the planet. Your choices are affecting people here in Taiwan and Asia. And uh, don't think that you don't matter. Don't think your choices don't matter. If tea is to be an instrument of peace, then how can we achieve peace through it if the focus of our practice itself is made in a way that's violent towards nature? Right? If the tea that we're consuming is, is, is damaging this earth, damaging the health of ecologies, causing species to go extinct, hurting farmers... Remember, 250,000 farmers roughly are dying a year from pesticide exposure. So hurting other humans, hurting nature, and hurting ourselves by ingesting toxicity, then our teaware really becomes weapons. Mm. These are no longer instruments of peace. This is no longer a practice of peace. It's a practice of greed and violence. And so if your approach is like, whatever tastes good to me, right? It's just off. We have to switch our priorities. We have to switch our value system because a value system is always mind-made. It's arbitrary. We make it up. Which is more valuable, a million dollars or 20 liters of water? Totally depends. If you're in the middle of the Sahara, you better say the water or you're going to be a skeleton with a bunch of pieces of paper blowing around it. So, you know, we can choose to value things that are created in a way that doesn't harm the earth or farmers or ourselves. And we can view things that do harm ourselves or other humans or the nature as low quality. Full stop. Right? Panda steak, even if it's delicious. I know this is absurd, this example, but let me make it. It's an absurd, absurd example. Even if some human enjoys the taste of panda steak, panda steak is low quality. Super low quality. Right? So tea that hurts farmers, hurts the earth, and, and hurts those who consume it is low quality. Because of because of that, it, you know, and we shouldn't purchase it. We shouldn't support that. And we should do our best to get that farmer to uh, change their ways. The easiest way is just to create supply for better, better quality, which means natural. Mm. So in order for this to be a cultivation, that's why this, you know, this life of tea podcast is more about the spiritual aspect of tea. But I, when you suggested we do a podcast on living tea, I agreed because, you know, the type of tea one's using is fundamental to this practice. Mm-hmm. And if the tea is made in, in any kind of harmful way, if your practice is harmful, of course it's harmful. In order for it to be healthy and healing for yourself and for others, then the instruments that you use have to be beneficial, have to be good, have to be a force for good, force for light. They have to bring nature into, a, into the human realm not vice versa. Mm-hmm. So this is paramount. It's to do with the quality of the medicine. And the quality of the medicine determines the healing, and the healing determines our ability to heal others. The more healed we are, the more we can heal others and slowly, slowly change this world. Discuss the problems, but more importantly, discuss the solutions. Mm-hmm. That's the way to be. Mm-hmm. May you all find living tea. May you all... Have tons of living tea in your day, today and tomorrow, until you're healed. And then you may you continue to have more living tea after you're healed so that you may share it with others so that they too may he- be healed. Let's all wake up. Let's all open our eyes. And let's create a green, healthy earth for ourselves and for our descendants. 
Thank you so much, Buddha, for sitting down and, and unpacking and discussing this absolutely essential topic for every tea lover and for every human being, I feel. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Life of Tea. I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts. And if you have, we encourage you to share these with your loved ones, your family and friends, and help spread the awareness this way. Your likes, comments and shares will go a long way and are deeply appreciated. Another direct way to support this project and the free tea center that we run here in Miaoli, Taiwan, is to sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine that covers all aspects of tea, from brewing and processing techniques to history, lore, spirituality and also the community aspect of tea. It comes with a beautiful sustainably produced tea every month. To subscribe, go to globalteahut.org. And if you're interested in the more linear aspects of how to brew tea, then visit our YouTube channel called Global Tea Hut. We have a series on there called Brewing Tea that focuses specifically on those aspects of tea. Thank you so much. I hope to meet you in the next episode where I'll be sitting down with Shinsu, one of the students here at the Tea Sage Hut, to discuss devotion and surrender.